This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Claire Gaffey, who was on an Arctic expedition this fall with other scientists who for years have been documenting the thinning of sea ice, the rising seawater temperatures, and the resulting biological changes. Gaffey grew up in Gilderland where she was fascinated with nature and felt a duty to protect it. In her third year of a Ph.D. program in geography, she now thinks of herself as the scientist she is. Gaffey says individuals can make a difference in stemming climate change and advises, be mindful of how you live. If we could just begin by hearing a little bit about what it was or what it is that you are doing there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Arctic is warming at least twice as fast as the rest of the globe. Um, this is having huge implications for ecosystems in the Arctic. So I am part of a, um, a research program called the Distributed Biological Observatory, um, DBO for short. It's a, um, an international program funded by NSF, NOAA, um, and the Pacific Arctic research group. Um, and we are looking at biological hotspots in the Pacific Arctic region. So right off the coast of Alaska, um, the whole length of Alaska, really, we have these spots that we go to every year to measure the biological activity there. Um, and this year was a bit more complicated than most. Um, this program has been going on continuously since 2013. Um, and uh, COVID really threw a wrench in the plans <laughs> this time around. Um, so I work with Karen Fry at Stark University um, out here in Worcester, Massachusetts now. And typically we go in July. Um, we gather uh, chlorophyll samples for looking at plant activity of phytoplankton. Um, we look at physical oceanography samples um, and also benthic samples, so animals that live on the seafloor, um, and that's through partners at the University of Maryland um, Center for Environmental Science. So we were actually supposed to go in July um, on a Canadian Coast Guard icebreaker, but because of COVID, um, any international collaboration like that, uh, the plans fell through, unfortunately. So we tried again in September using a NOAA vessel <clears throat> um, with, uh, with COVID plans installed. We had a quarantine of, uh, I believe it was 10 days in September. So I and uh, five or six other scientists stayed in a house in Washington. Um, quarantine, didn't see anybody got tested while we were there, were tested before we arrived. And um, the plan was, you know, if any of us tested negative or positive, I should say, for COVID, then all of us wouldn't be able to go. Um, interestingly, we never expected that would be the case um, because if one of us in a household has COVID, probably more than one of us really do. Uh, but 
the uh, <laughs> unthinkable did happen. And one person in our household tested positive. It ended up being um, a false positive, but we were not able to participate in that research cruise. So um, this one that we finally did get to go on was our third attempt of this year. And we went in October. Um, typically, uh, we try to avoid going to the Arctic in October because worms come through, <clears throat> um, sea ice is forming, um, and it makes uh, collecting measurements a lot more difficult. But uh, we, once again, quarantined, this time all separately in different hotel rooms, and uh, everybody was able to make it on board. So I'm very grateful for that. Gosh, it was just an adventure getting there, um, going through these different steps. So is this the first time you had done this, or is this something you had done before? This is my second time going. Um, but uh, my um, PhD advisor and um, the University of Maryland people have been doing this for years. But last year, I was able to go in July on the Canadian Coast Guard icebreaker Um and that was really interesting. I did not see any sea ice in either of these trips. I'm still keeping my fingers crossed for next time. So <laughs> even though it was October and there's usually ice, there was no ice. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yes. And we were unpleasantly surprised. And that is a direct result of global warming, this idea that ice that's usually there is no longer there? Absolutely. Right. So... um Water temperatures were up to three degrees warmer than usual all the way through the water column. Uh, we expected to see some ice in October just in general, but we did not see a single piece of ice. And um, it, air temperatures were a lot warmer than we were expecting, too. We packed for Arctic um, autumn, and uh, honestly, we didn't need the warm clothes that we brought with us. That is really distressing to hear it directly from somebody who observed that. So um, just to fill people in, because you went by a couple of acronyms quickly, the NSF is the National Science Foundation, and the NOAA is the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So you have some really huge, important organizations behind this project. If you could just kind of tell us what it's like either – Comparing your trip originally in July, I'm assuming a year back, and then this year in October, uh, what like what is it like on board these ships, and what are your day-to-day activities like? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, the two ships, first of all, were very different. Um, the first ship I went on uh, in 2019 a Canadian icebreaker. It was um, almost 300 feet long. And the one that we just went in in October was uh, 115 feet long. So um, difference in size, difference in structure. Um, We did have some stormy weather in October. So I had my first experience of being seasick. (laughs) Uh, But we we did expect that. And especially on a, a smaller vessel, I think it it didn't help the situation. In um, the previous trip in July, we had very calm waters. We were very lucky for um, a first timer like me. <laughs> I, fortunate. Day to day depends on what's going on. If we're traveling to the site that we plan to collect, 
Um, we'll usually be getting the lab ready, making sure that everything is labeled, the samples are ready to be filled. Um, and then once we do get on station, uh, we are all working. So um, collecting water samples, collecting sediment samples, um, filtering those water samples if that needs to be done there or packaging things up and putting them in the freezer for analysis later. Uh, we do these transects. So we'll have one station and then um, travel to the next station in the transect and we can have maybe 10 or so stations within a transect. So things can get a little bit crazy because once you are at the station, you need to work. It doesn't matter what time it is. Um, oftentimes it's in the middle of the night. So uh, we'll work on one station as we filter water, um, clean our equipment, etc. We'll be traveling to the next station, which it's an hour commute, two hours commute, five hour commute. So uh, you go a long time without sleeping on uh, some occasions. <laughs> and um, it's tough work in that aspect, but the camaraderie is amazing because uh, you and everyone around you <laughs> has gone without sleep, maybe for 24 hours. And uh, it, it creates some interesting uh, conversations, I'll say. Wow, that is quite a strenuous schedule. <laughs> the picture that was sent to me of you, you are standing holding a bottle. Is that like what the samples are taken in? It just looks like kind of a typical plastic water bottle almost. It's brown and there are a bunch of tanks behind you. Is that what the sampling is like? You take like a bottle's worth of water and how like what are the samples? How do you how do you extract them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the tanks that you see in the background of that picture is called a CTD. So it goes into the, well, it's called the rosette and a CTD. There's an instrument on there that measures the salinity and temperature. That's the CTD part. And the actual tanks of water are called rosettes. So um, it's lowered into the water column and at different depths they'll trigger the bottles so that we get different samples at different depths, all the way from the bottom water to the surface. Um, that bottle that you do see is one of my sample bottles, um, the Nalgene. Um, so for my work specifically, I was there helping out um, partners from University of Alaska Fairbanks, um, Dr. Katrin Eichen and um, NOAA partners as well in um collecting for what's called environmental DNA. So I take these one liter bottles, these Nalgene bottles, and I have three samples of each depth. So I use that rosette behind me, fill those bottles, go back into the lab, and I run the water through a pump, and uh, it goes through a tiny, tiny filter. So this tiny filter is actually what I save and send back to NOAA at the end of the cruise. And um, so what it's collecting for is any fish, whales, um, plankton. Within their environment, they shed DNA, much like as us humans would shed dead skin cells or hair pieces, um, they shed as well. So I'm looking for this DNA um, just generally from this water sample and uh, 
the partners at UAF and NOAA will look at what kind of animals are actually living in the waters um, from where we sampled. Fascinating. So you, as the collector, are not the same person doing the analysis that gets shipped for someone in a lab to look at and decipher. And then do you get the data back? Do you have... Where along the continuum do you reappear in this research? Or is it, are you finished with your role once you've done the collection and, and shipped it off? Yes. Um, so we are, it's a big project. So this uh, past year, in that instance, I was only the collector for that data. So um, that will go on to other scientists to run the analysis and write the papers based on that. Um, but as part of the DBO project in general, I work mostly on remote sensing. So using satellite imagery to connect with another kind of sampling that we do, which is chlorophyll. So we also collected chlorophyll on this cruise as well. And I will, um, I have been looking at satellite imagery to put together a bigger story based on what we see spatially and temporally um, connecting it to this one piece in time sample that we have. So um, though I didn't collect the chlorophyll samples on this cruise or the last cruise, that is the data that I have been using for my own research. We're we're a big team. Yeah, (laughs) a big team with fascinating work. I'd like to understand this just if you could unpack it a little, what you do with the satellite imagery in terms of the chlorophyll how does that work absolutely so um when we collect samples at sea you're collecting samples within the water column so uh, five meters deep all the way down to the bottom water i use satellite imagery to also look at um chlorophyll but only at the surface level so they're two very different perspectives I can see with satellite imagery, the surface chlorophyll um, across the whole ocean surface, as long as clouds don't get away, which is often the case, unfortunately. Um, but in order to get a full understanding of the growth cycle of these phytoplankton that are really important for carbon cycling, for nutrient cycling, um, creating oxygen, they're they're huge, huge players in the climate system. So in order to understand um, what they're doing, we take both the cruise data and the satellite imagery to look through space and time how things are changing. And I almost hate to ask this question because I think it's going to be an answer that's upsetting, but how are they changing through space and time? What have you found? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting story. So with lack of sea ice and warming temperatures, you do get a lot of losers in the ecosystem, um, particularly polar bears everybody knows about. Um, walrus aren't doing well. Seals aren't doing well. Um, but there are some winners as well. So when I'm looking at chlorophyll, um, usually what happens The sea ice cover is all throughout the winter. The most amount of sea ice usually is, uh, it happens in March. And then after that point, sea ice breaks apart, melts, and this big boom of ice algae and um, also 
more pelagic, typical phytoplankton activity in the spring. So you get this big bloom, we call it, in the spring. And then typically sea ice returns um, after September into October, and uh, you don't see any more activity. It's done. It's going dormant um, for the winter season. But now that sea ice cover is lessening each year, so that sea ice breakup is happening uh, earlier and the freeze up of sea ice is happening later in the year, you have a longer open water season. um, And that actually allows for uh, an extended period of growth, but maybe for species that you wouldn't typically see. So ice algae in this case is a big loser, but phytoplankton that enjoy living in open ocean, maybe warmer temperatures are moving in. And they, uh, they're actually, in that case, there's more chlorophyll than we expected to see in this October trip. Fascinating. So just to back up in time, <laughs> I'd like to hear about how you became a scientist. Um, I come from an era when women were not often scientists, and I just think it's so exciting and wonderful what you're doing. If you could take us all the way back to your childhood and just tell us a little about growing up in Gilderland, I assume, um, Mm -hmm. what your family is like, you know, what your parents do, if you have siblings, just tell us a little about your, your being raised here in Gilderland. Yes, absolutely. Um, So I had a great childhood in Gilderland. I always had a fascination with nature and a a duty to protect nature. So I, I can't pinpoint exactly where that stemmed from, but I, I can attribute it to my parents. I'm sure we did a lot of hiking in the Adirondacks. Um, I went to summer camp at Tawasentha and in the Helderberg workshops. (laughs) Um, Spent a lot of time outside that I'm grateful for. Um, Gilderland High School was great. Um, I did not know I wanted to be a scientist or that I was even capable of becoming a scientist during my high school years. Um, The sciences in high school, I remember being very fundamental and kind of separate blocks. So one year you would take earth science, which was essentially geology. Um, I also took chemistry, biology, and physics. And while each were interesting in their own way, they were very abstract and separated, isolated. And it wasn't until I got to college where I took more classes that interconnected these sciences that really sparked my interest in environmental science and science in general. So how does uh, biology affect climate? How does climate affect biology? really lured me in, and that's what I like to focus my work on now. Um, One thing that I will say that I really appreciate from my childhood was uh, the athletics at the Gilliland High School. What Um, sports did you play? While I was there, I did field hockey, uh, cross-country skiing in the winter, and track in the spring. And um, I think I developed a lot of my character from those experiences. I definitely got my time management from participating in sports. Um, You know, it built my confidence, but it also humbled me, depending on the day. And uh, actually, between 2013 and 2018, I had the privilege of 
going back to Gilderland High School as a athletic coach. And what, you, was, what did you coach? Um, I coached JV field hockey. Uh, Jen Sykes is there now. She's the head of the field hockey program. She's an incredible person herself. And uh, I was an assistant coach for the cross-country team with um, Barbara Newton and John Mapstone, uh, which are also really quality people there. So um, I'm really glad that they're still there. They coached me, and then I got a, I got to coach alongside them as well, and it really meant the world to me. That's wonderful. And it's so unusual to hear about sports being important, not just in shaping your character, but in really some ways your academic career. I'd love to explore that a little. You said that it built your confidence and also humbled you. So, um, like, how did that work? How, how did it how did it do both those things? Oh, you know, I mean, you you make one good move in a game, and then the next game you think you're going to be great, but um, destiny serves you something else, <laughs> and you're not. Uh, so it really it keeps you in check of where you are. It teaches you um, if you want something to work hard for it, and that's certainly something that I had to carry on um, in order to do a master's degree or do a PhD. Um, as long as your interest is there and the work ethic is there, then you can do it. Because like I said, I didn't ever think of myself as a scientist. I had to kind of become the scientist and do the science before I um, could admit to myself that, yeah, I guess I am a scientist. Why was that hard to think of yourself as a scientist? Um, I, I wasn't surrounded by scientists. I didn't know any scientists. Uh, you know, it was just as abstract of thinking myself as a a pilot or an astronaut. I just didn't have those kinds of connections at that age. Yeah, no, I back when I was in school in like the 1970s, Matino Horner at Radcliffe was doing these studies on how women had to be able to picture themselves as something in order to become something. And that's the big leap to be able to picture yourself and here you are and now maybe I'm hoping some young young girls are listening to this and will be able to picture themselves like that so what is it like to be a scientist is it similar to as you were saying on the playing field that sometimes you feel good in a game and you've done something right and then you get a setback and have to keep going what what are the challenges in being a scientist Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I get humbled all the time, but you have to, um, you know, I am a student. I'm, I'm still a student and I embrace being a student. So that means putting out ideas or suggestions and then being prepared to be being told that you're not correct or corrected some way. So it, it, it definitely takes a humble nature, which is fine. Um, you know, I, I, look forward to being a lifetime learner and uh, you don't always get it right the first time. So being able to keep coming back to an issue and problem solve and uh, putting the time into something that might not be fruitful, um, but still having the will to try again and continue is really important in becoming a scientist. So if any young ladies do want to become scientists, you are certainly capable of doing so. So even if things do go wrong and you are incorrect about something, there's always a new day. 
<laughs> it, it gets easier. Yeah, you seem to have this really resilient personality. So where are you in your PhD right now? What what stage are you at? Um, so, yeah, um, I'm in my third year. Uh, how it works, I'm getting a PhD in geography at Clark University, like I mentioned. Um, the first two years you do uh, courses. So I finished my courses, and this year I am responsible in doing my proposal defense for my research, and also my oral examination, my qualifying exam, and that's what I have the most anxiety about. So (laughs) uh, this year, this third year is typically um, stressful, as I've seen from my other peers, but um, so far, you know, I've I've really enjoyed the PhD. I hope that I can continue on doing very similar work to what I'm doing now. so I fully recommend it to anyone thinking about it. That was going to be my next question. What is it that you hope to do with your career when you successfully complete your oral exam and finish your research and are awarded your degree? Where where do you hope to go from here? Yes. Well, once once I get there, I would I would like to continue on being an Arctic scientist. You know, I uh, there's a lot of changes going on in the Arctic that we could talk about for the next three hours, really. Um, a lot of attention needs to be drawn to the Arctic, and I really hope I can fulfill a role in doing that. Well, we are we have, I think, about three minutes left. So could you, in those three minutes, highlight for us what are some of these most important things that we as just common citizens should know about what's happening in the Arctic? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, well, climate change is affecting the globe, not just the Arctic. Um, there's a lot of things that we can do as citizens to um, reduce our footprint a bit and make these changes not so harsh. So some changes are inevitable as we've already seen changes. So um, specifically in the Arctic, we have lack of sea ice, warming ocean temperatures, warming air temperatures, um, permafrost, which is um, permanently frozen soil, has been thawing throughout um, Siberia and parts of Alaska. And that's releasing a lot of... um, organic matter that will become methane and contribute to climate change. So there's some very dangerous feedbacks that are built into the Arctic system. So if we don't control our own emissions um, and we wait until it's honestly too late, there will be other feedbacks that will promote increased warming, including that methane from permafrost, um, lack of albedo from um, I'll quickly just say what that is, though your listeners probably know. Sea ice and uh, land ice glaciers um, are some of the brightest materials in the world, naturally. So when solar radiation comes in on a white, bright surface, it gets reflected back. But without that sea ice cover, um, it's replaced with just dark ocean, which typically absorbs 
that kind of solar radiation incoming and um, adds to the energy budget, increasing temperatures even further. So um, as a citizen, as you and I and everybody else in Altamont and Gilderland, um, there's a lot of things that we can do for our own lifestyles, including um, being mindful of how you live. Everything that you consume came from somewhere and will go somewhere. Um, <clears throat> there's uh, a lot of big ticket items that could happen. Um, transportation, industry, um, agriculture, these are big emitters of greenhouse gases. So putting any sort of political pressure that we can on those systems and um, voting with your dollar. So if uh, if you want to eat meat, eat meat that came from somewhere local and did not travel to New Zealand and China and et cetera, just look at what you're really purchasing and think about where it came from and then where is that material going to go once you're done with it. Excellent advice. I really appreciate it. It's a perfect note to end on. It makes us feel a little bit empowered that rather than just sitting and watching this happen, we can have an active role in doing something that will prevent it from getting worse as fast as it is. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure's all mine.